head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com watch. That's mintmobile.com watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, my variant, it's Andy Greenwald. I feel like that. I feel like we're in alternate timelines right now. We're we're both on the East Coast, but we're not together. Yeah. Uh, we're out of our comfort zones. So who knows what kind of show we're going to have? Who does? Uh, we're going to talk about the Emmys. We're going to talk about the finale of Loki, the season finale of Loki, because now we know that there's mm-hmm. going to be a second season. And we're going to talk about Black Widow. The Black Widow and Loki stuff is kind of inter interlocked, I think. Greenwald, let's, should we just jump right into Emmys? Yeah, this is bizarre because, you know... People who listen to the show regularly know that you and I, as the co-hosts of the most consistent pop culture podcast on the internet, have our finger on the pulse. So we knew for sure, both of us, that the Emmy nominations hey, were coming I, I had it right? marked down in a calendar. Yeah. I just just missed, I misplaced the calendar. That's the thing. And when you discovered the calendar and I got a text from you at the beach with a list of Emmy nominations, I was like, <laughs> bet, this is, this, is, this is right. This is what I expected. What a crazy thing this was, yeah. I, I, I thought. So I got, when I looked at the nominations, Mm -hmm. my first reaction was, am I looking at a list of all the TV that has come out this year? Because there are multiple categories here where there's upwards of eight nominees. I think that there is some wishful thinking in some cases in terms of the designation Mm -hmm. of, of, let's, let's see if we can get Hamilton in here, right? Let's just jam Hamilton in this one too. And then there is, uh, some pleasant surprises, some, uh, some sort of thinking face emoji surprises. Mm-hmm. And all in all, I think a really it's going to be a really quality night in terms of the kind of television that's getting celebrated. There are a couple of UFC cage matches where yeah. I'm like, I don't know who's going to exit the the cage standing here. Uh, what's your what are your big takeaways from all the nominees? Well, I guess my first takeaway is that, and this has been true for the last number of years, I think that of all the major award shows, the Emmys remain the most responsive and relevant to the medium that it celebrates as it is actually experienced and watched. And I think that there are, and we won't start here, but I think it's just worth um, putting down the marker that I think that there are lessons here for the Oscars. I think the Grammys are beyond teaching, but I think that there are lessons here for the Oscars, which very publicly and very dramatically and and uh, has, has sort of 
we've been able to watch their torment as it's tried to comport itself to both changing times culturally and societally, as well as financially for its industry. And the Emmys continue to evolve and reflect TV as it is watched for good and for ill. I also was struck by the sheer number of nominees. And I feel like it's worth just beginning there to clarify, because I think if you look at like the best drama series, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Or best comedy series are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight comedy series, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight drama series. That seems quite a lot. And I would actually argue that the eight drama series are the eight shows that are not limited. Like on TV. I a hundred percent agree with that. And and we're gonna talk about that too, because for as much as the Emmys have tried to keep up with the changing times, they are still slow in some areas, one of which is the division of ongoing series from limited slash event slash anthology series was, I understand why it existed. I understand why it's continued to exist, but they're going to have to figure something out. Because mm-hmm. if you were to remove those uh, qualifications, whether one is limited, one is unlimited or whatever, what would this category look like? How many of the currently nominated drama and comedy shows would even be there if they had to compete against Mayor of Easttown or right. I May Destroy You, et cetera, et cetera. But I will, to start I will with- just quickly just mention that the, the Outstanding Drama Series, as we talk, I'll try to drop the nominees sure. here. The Outstanding Drama Series are The uh, the Boys, Bridgerton, The Crown, The Handmaid's Tale, Lovecraft Country, The Mandalorian, Pose, and This Is Us. I mean, and to be, to be fair to the Emmys and to the TV Academy, those are definitely television shows. Mm-hmm. All of them. I mean, there's no question. So they're all, they, are, they all deserve to be listed as television shows. Whether yes. they are the best drama series, we'll get to in a second. But, or whether they are even being made anymore. Another great point. Thus uh, making them limited. Um, so this began last year, and I don't think we noted it. I didn't really notice it. But so because there's just so goddamn much television, the Emmys instituted a sliding scale rule for the number of nominees within each category that is tied directly to the number of submissions it gets. And for people who you know who, who don't remember this or need to hear this every year, uh, networks submit or performers submit themselves, basically, in whatever category they feel is both appropriate and that they kind of have the best chance in. You know, mm-hmm. there are certain, there's always things like, uh, like Hannah Einbinder on Hacks was nominated. Congratulations. Phenomenal. We love that show. As supporting actress, she's kind of the co-lead with Gene Smart. Sure. But this was a smarter play, I guess, to submit herself or have herself submitted as supporting. So the sliding scale is, if they only receive one to 19 submissions in a category, that means there will either be zero nominations up to four. 20 to 80 submissions equals five nominations. 81 to 160 submissions, six nominations. 161 to 247 nominations, 240 and above, eight submissions. So there are several categories that got 240 or above submissions. Or above. And you know who's happiest about this is the billboard industry in Los Angeles, because every one of those got a billboard for your consideration. Not for our consideration, but for whoever is voting. I'm going off of last year's info. Last year, there were, I believe, eight in both categories as well. There were over 280 submissions in the comedy and drama uh, categories last year. So when you say submissions, you mean different elements of shows submitting for... No, that means 200 for the drama... Let's just take best drama series. Uh 280 drama series submitted themselves for consideration in that category. So I watched a lot of TV last year. Uh Uh-huh. There were 280 drama series who got up in the morning and said, you know what I am? A best drama series. I mean, yes. I guess what probably is is like literally every show that is a 
yes. a running drama. Like Virgin River or whatever, like all Big Sky, every single show probably was just like, we're, we, we are submitting ourselves for Emmys. Okay. They 100% yeah. do. Yes, okay. that's every, I mean, uh, yeah, every Dick Wolf show uh, submits itself for I Best gotcha. Drama. Okay, There's that makes no, more sense. No, no question. And so, and so here we are. So that's why there are just these eye-popping numbers. But I think that we should probably start here uh, again. And like, why don't we go through this cage match, like the absolute sure. blood sport that is the limited, limited series. series, because this is really where a lot of eyes are focused. And I think it really speaks to the the issues that the Emmys are going to face going forward. So to Andy's point, you know, if 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 you were to put any I, I think any of the drama series with possibly the exception of the crown and and in some corners the mandalorian and in some corners the boys up against these limited series it would be hard to see which one which there no limited series i would not lose any of these limited series against the drama series i may yep. destroy you mayor of Easttown, the queen's gambit the underground railroad wandavision so five limited series nominated where it gets absolutely just you know two men enter one man leave mm-hmm. or two women enter one woman leave is in outstanding lead actor and outstanding lead actress, especially an outstanding lead actor in a limited series. You got Paul Bettany for WandaVision, Hugh Grant for the undoing. You and McGre- a show that by the way, got pretty much otherwise snubbed, which yes. is pretty remarkable. An HBO prestige show that did numbers like it did. Ewan McGregor for Halston, Lin-Manuel Miranda for a little thing called Hamilton and Leslie Odom Jr. Also for Hamilton. This is where it gets nuts. Outstanding lead actress in a limited series is Michaela Cole for I May Destroy You, Cynthia Erivo for Genius Aretha, Elizabeth Olsen for WandaVision, Anya Taylor-Joy for The Queen's Gambit, and Kate Winslet for The Mayor of Easttown. I, I mean, let, let's say two, two things. For people who are still a little unclear on this, for many years, because of the way TV was, it was limited series or movie. That was a combined category. Yeah, which so is, I guess, it, why Hamilton is in this category. Because they have yet to separate the the individual acting awards the way they separated the series awards. That is something that they need to do immediately, and they probably will do starting next year. For but this in the meantime, reason. in yeah. the meantime, so when you watch the Oscars, and as we've seen, as we, you, I, I recommend people listen to Big Pictures, the awards show, the the Oscar show that they do, where they just talk about the sort of nature of the awards throughout the year. One of the crises of the Oscars is what they're celebrating at that award show versus what yep. people are actually going to see in theaters. Mm-hmm. And there's always this like spoonful of sugar with your medicine where should they nominate The Last Jedi? <laughs> I mean, I know that would be controversial or something like that. Should should these big films get nominated in big categories to draw eyeballs to the ceremony even if it's going to be these smaller films, these artier films that win? Now, obviously, like I think when they when something like Green Book goes through, the idea is to thread the needle of popular entertainment and awards fair. And nobody had a problem with that. So yeah, that was absolutely. a great success. The Emmys has seemingly solved this. Now, partially because TV, I think, is the popular and the the acclaimed are a little bit closer together, possibly. At least, you know, I, I mean, that, that's a debate we can have. I mean, there are, if you look at the actual quote-unquote Nielsen ratings of like what yes. people are watching, they're not necessarily on this list. But WandaVision is a big show, was a big mm-hmm. show, and it is well represented here with, with upwards of, I think, 23 nominations. The Mandalorian might be the pop cultural event of the last 18 months. That got 24 nominations. Lots of people watch The Crown. Lots of people watch This Is Us. I think lots of people still watch, you know, uh, 
I mean, lots of people watched Mayor of Easttown. So you have these shows that have relatively large fan bases with really big names, and they are all represented here at TV's sort of crowning crowning night. It, it's kind of amazing. I mean, first of all, I would say to the, to the comparison with the Oscars, you, one could envision a world in which the outstanding limited series nominees, and I'll say them again, Mayor of Easttown, I May Destroy You, WandaVision, Queen's Gambit, Underground Railroad. If those were the five nominees for best drama series, I wouldn't necessarily blink. I'm not yeah. saying people were, other things weren't snubbed or that you could make a case for The Crown or, or even The Mandalorian, but that's a legitimate list. I mean, that is not just a legitimate list. It's a legitimate snapshot, not just of what we cover on the podcast, but of what of where TV is right now. I mean, the divide between uh, WandaVision and Underground Railroad alone as both you know expensive, lauded passion projects by, the, by two of the richest corporations in the world and you know the divergent responses they've gotten, et cetera, et cetera. That's in and of itself a fascinating debate. And then you throw in, as you said, I mean, I may destroy you. Our favorite show of last year, Mayor of Easttown, our favorite topic of this year. It's pretty. It's pretty thrilling. I would also say, when you go back to the drama series, if you were Chris, if you were going to put on your Jonas Era glasses and be the Hollywood fixer again, mm-hmm. there is clearly clearly a market inefficiency here. And the market inefficiency is in ongoing drama series. Not just an opportunity to get nominated for Emmys, because I think that this, this list, while definitely, as I said, representing television shows, in no way represents a consensus of audience acclaim or taste. And there's, there's just a lane here. Now, obviously, the lane looks a little bit different because Better Call Saul and Succession both had their seasons delayed. And those are the two shows, not just that we love. And Stranger Things as well, which often gets nominated, I think. Stranger Things as well. And and those are, those are three shows that more fit the mold of what we have come to expect, not just because of the DNA of uh, Better Call Saul being related to, to, to Breaking Bad, but just the type of ongoing entertainment we've seen. But there's a market inefficiency here. And it also does speak to the changing marketplace writ large, which is as TV was you know, moving towards a more prestige model and get eyeballs model, and particularly as the streamers launched and they wanted big, big, big ticket IP or big ticket star power, mm-hmm. the difference between getting Kate Winslet on a one-year deal, I mean, I know we do sound like baseball GMs right now, but getting Kate Winslet on a one-year deal versus signing a cast of absolutely outstanding lesser-known people to seven-year deals, the economics of that start to come into play and we start to see how it plays out in terms of response and awards recognition. And piggybacking Um, off that take, I would just say that if you look at this best limited series with a couple of exceptions, there is a world in which any one of those limited series were once featured film developments. You know, those those limited series Mm -hmm. are the long-term effect of people starting to take movies that they probably can't make in Hollywood anymore and saying, okay, let's, let's tell this over six or seven hours or 10 or 12 hours with a huge star, but with a limited commitment. And the split um, for that take, which I think is correct, Queen's Gambit, a book, you know, that's existed for almost 40 years and was, has been in development for nearly as long when Scott Frank, the creator, writer, director came on our podcast to talk about it. He said like this had been this was supposed to be a movie many, many times, and this mm-hmm. ended up being the right way to do it. The flip side of that, you know, and, and we'll keep patting ourselves on our collective backs here for people we've had on the show, but good friend of the pod, Ethan Hawke, 
who to my mind is the biggest snub, at least yeah. in terms of headlines for his work in The Good Lord Bird. Incredible performance, really impressive miniseries overall. And just a sign of, as you said, the blood sport here that that couldn't find its way in. It couldn't find its audience when in the ongoing drama series or whatever, like, like Pen15 is really good. And it got nominated because I feel like, you know, there was room for it. There, mm-hmm. is no, there was no room for the good Lord Bird here. That's an unfair comparison between those two shows, but I'm just grabbing titles that I see at the moment. And anyway, Good Lord Bird, another project based on an acclaimed book that was maybe a movie. And then it's like, no, this will work better here. And it did work better here, but it didn't get the result that, um, I mean, everyone's proud of it, but I think they definitely wanted more recognition for it, if only because that would turn into more eyeballs. And that's a surprise to me that it didn't get anything. I'm going to fast forward ahead here a little bit because I want, and, and this is a tough question to ask, but mm-hmm. the morning after the Emmys, mm-hmm. if I had to, if you had to say right now, who do you mm-hmm. think the big winner will be? Of, of, uh, in terms of like networks or shows or anything, or, or a what? person, a network, a show. Yeah. I think Mare is going to clean up and I think Ted Lasso is going to clean up. I was going to um, say that Ted Lasso, you know, and, and, you know, our, our buddy Zach Barron just wrote a really great profile of Ted, of J- Ted Lasso, of Jason Sudeikis in GQ. Please read it. Uh, it's great. And it, it, it definitely sets the table for this, for this victory lap that we're about to, to witness. I mean, and I say this as someone, I know people don't believe me. The show didn't feel like it was for me at the time. I'm not casting any aspersions on it. I loved reading the story. I loved what Zach uh, got out of Jason Sudeikis. I love what Jason Sudeikis is putting into the world. And what he's putting into the world is the rare thing where it's both genuine, It's refle- in terms of a, an emotional story, it's genuine, it's reflected in the art, in the show, and uh, it's a great story. And it also has a little bit of tabloidy piece because of uh, his personal life and the upheavals that went on during the making of the show. All of that is going to come together for a big win. I think that's also the second gonna, season being released. Exactly at the right time. But I yeah. mean, the comedy series thing, you, you mentioned the drama series. And I think the main takeaway from the drama series is this is what the Oscars both want and are afraid of in that uh, genres crash the party. Right. I mean, Game of Thrones winning multiple times set the table. But in this list, yeah, the crown could still win for sure. Um, But and this is us is still quietly representing, you know, just steady old fashioned broadcast success. But the presence of the boys is wild to me. You and I really like that show. I can't wait for there for there to be more episodes. I'm not sure I would have considered it an outstanding drama series, but maybe that's my old fashioned brain. Same with Mandalorian. Same even with Lovecraft Country, which I think is worth noting. Um, You know, it is a highly genre show. It's also a very uh, complicated and complex show, both on the screen and apparently off of it too, because Mm -hmm. HBO sat on developing a second season for a year before just a week ago announcing that everyone was out of their letting they were letting people out of their holds and and the show would not be returning. And then it gets this and then Emmy Misha Green, the showrunner, signs an overall uh, an overall deal with Apple right after that. Yeah, it, it's interesting. The backstory I would love to, to know about that show just fundamentally didn't work for me, but I guess it clearly worked enough for Emmy voters. But anyway, this is the big, this is what, to a degree, what the Oscars would look like if, uh, um, you know, Endgame was nominated for Best Picture. Right. The comedy thing, maybe comedy has just always been incredibly subjective. And you and I, Chris, grew up in an era where there just weren't that many choices. So we had things like Friends or Cheers or Seinfeld to kind of quote unquote unite us, even though clearly not everyone was watching it. But I would, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone 
who likes all of these shows. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> or at least finds them all funny. So because they're so deeply best... funny in so many different ways. I'll, I'll list them. The sure. Outstanding Comedy Series. Uh, Blackish, Cobra Kai. What a success story, by the way, from kind of a... A YouTube show, yeah. A YouTube what felt like almost an inside joke to a huge success on Netflix and now an Emmy nomination. Pen15, Emily in Paris, a show I don't think anyone likes sincerely, but maybe that's just me picking up, you know... Have you seen any of it? the zeitgeist. No. Okay. Uh, so I shouldn't. No, speak I wasn't like you're missing out on uh, on Ernst Lubitsch movie. I'm just saying, like, I was just curious whether you would actually. Is, is Emily it. in Paris in the Le Bureau extended universe <laughs> of Paris? Uh, Hacks, Ted Lasso, Flight Attendant, Kaminsky Method. I mean, what a bizarre range of shows. Again, maybe you could look at that and say this celebrates the the breadth of where television is right now and the options for comedy that a show like Flight Attendant and Pen Fifteen are even considered in the same category. I found it fascinating. I also found it almost, what do you think about this before we, and, and we should get out to the big Marvel stuff, which maybe says more about where the industry is than even us uh, narrowcasting our thoughts about the Emmys. Am I still holding on to that monoculture piece that we often bump up against, that we're used to, you know, that this should somehow mean something or represent something? Um, I guess I, I, I'm still processing my reaction to just how disjointed and digressive that the drama and comedy nominees seemed to be. A collection, to my mind, and I say this with love and respect for a lot of the shows, a collection of Bs yeah. to B pluses with a couple C minuses thrown well, in. Well, I don't know. I mean, I wonder whether there's something to... It's, it's arguably a golden age of comedy on television right now in terms of the mm-hmm. variety of stuff that you can find in terms of the amount of formal innovation that's going on across the board. And that's whether you're uh, an I think you should leave fan or a fan of of something like Ted Lasso, you know, things on sort of polar opposites. But at the same time, there's a reason why you and I usually will just say, I really liked this and then mm-hmm. move on. And it's not because we're lazy. It's just because I think that the level of engagement that you have with comedy just differs than the one you do with drama. I mean, I think in, in yeah. with dramas, people start to talk about... Um, their feelings and their ideas and their lives and they start to see themselves in shows and they start to learn about themselves through shows and with comedy typically at least like in terms of the public discourse i think people will say this was great and i really loved it and it was entertaining and i laughed a lot and and when it's something like hacks you can nece- you can obviously have like an emotional connection to it but the second half of that hack season is is essentially a drama you know mm-hmm. um and you know there there's large swaths of I would even say flight attendant, which is like a thriller. It is a thriller. So yes. it's kind of it's kind of weird. It's like I I guess in the same way that we it, we have these sort of sliding rules for limited and 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 what what's a limited series and what's a, a an ongoing drama series. I think with comedy, you're seeing in there a list of shows that are comedy is just the first thing that they are, mm-hmm. you know. And then and I I would I would be curious to know what would happen if they somehow made a that you have to have three laughs per page rule you know would you see a different yeah. collection of comedies there I, I think the other thing worth worth saying or, or worth noting probably two other things and then we can move on because obviously we'll talk about the Emmys when they actually happen it's clearly an issue to represent an entire industry when there are you know, upwards of four or five six hundred shows per year it's interesting to see the way Emmy voters, and they've done a good job trying to diversify the block of voters, both in terms of age and life experience and profession, but they clump together too. 
right? There are shows that clearly, like with like America, Emmy voters just really watched and others that they maybe did the polite one episode of or checked in or understand that this was an important performance, but maybe not worthy of the entire series. But like the the, the Ted Lasso block, you know what I mean, is just really remarkable. Uh, four nominees, I think, in the best supporting actor in a comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's wild. So it's sort of, it, it is interesting as a case study to see the shows that were considered versus the ones that clearly people fell in love with. I think it's also worth noting because this has been a struggle for a lot of award shows to try to reflect diversity in terms of talent, but also in terms of uh, just the audience that might be watching certain shows or that might see something in certain shows. And I feel like the Emmys, at least in terms of its acting nominees, did a really good job of acknowledging and noticing and uh, celebrating the talent that's been on display this year. I mean, it is worth noting, this is a small thing, this is not a big thing, but of the outstanding lead actor in a drama series, um, six actors nominated, four actors of color nominated in that category. That's yeah. got to be a record. And it's notable. This matters. And it actually, you know, we can even use Jonathan Majors, who is nominated as a lead in Lovecraft Country, as a bridge maybe to moving to talk about Loki because he shows up there too in a situation that I think a few years ago he might not have been put in. And it was it made the episode that much better to it, see him it, there. It feels a lot less... Uh, labored over in the Emmys. Mm-hmm. Like, I do think that a lot of these shows were the best shows and a lot of this work was the best work. And, you know, I I, I, I do, it, it's, it's the Emmys have always like thrown me for a loop, I think, because of their, uh, the time frame which they operate. And often mm-hmm. what will happen is there are shows of the moment when the Emmys are running that you feel like, why aren't we talking about X, Y, or Z, you know? Whereas you're talking about a show from like 11 months ago, but not 13 months ago. And it's just, it feels kind of random, especially since there are no more real like seasons of like, Mm -hmm. here come the fall shows and now they're all going to go on hiatus in the spring. Uh, But that being said, like this is a really great collection of work. I love that you use the word labored. I think that's right. I think that the thing that the Oscars may never be able to overcome is this self-regard, uh, which is earned because movies, good job, good job by you movies. You've done a great, you've done a lot of great work, but that, 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 it is an art form that is somehow existentially artistic and uplifting and exhilarating and mind expanding. And TV has always had um, second kid syndrome. And it's just like, well, we're just TV here. And because of that, um, and, and, you know, it's worth noting the prestige divide that we're starting to see in the limited series, but something like Bridgerton, which is a show I have not watched and I apologize, we don't really cover. People love that show. Mm-hmm. That is a huge, huge, huge success. Yeah. Credit to Shonda Rhimes, who is brilliant at this and who just redid her Netflix deal, uh, which appears to be finally putting her in the pay grade she honestly deserves, you know, equal to a Ryan Murphy or someone else in that Netflix stratosphere. But it's not debatable. Like, I get why Bridgerton was nominated for Best Drama. It's a huge show people loved. Roger Jean Page gets nominated for Lead Actor in a Drama Series. Yeah, because he was the star of one of the biggest shows of the year and he became a big star from it. Yeah. Like, it's not that complicated. And I think that's when the Emmys really shine and allow us to sort of be slightly critical, but generally enthusiastic because it does feel like it is trying, if sometimes clumsily, to wrap its arms around a very contentious, thriving medium. Yeah, and you know what? Like, I think that there's like a, there's a wolf at the door feeling with a lot of the superhero stuff and a lot of the franchise IP stuff that's, that's happening in Hollywood. I think at this point now, it's more rare to find somebody who doesn't work Mm -hmm. on one of those things or aspire to work on one of those things to then find somebody who turns their nose up at it. But there seems to be a much more like, hey, 
the playground's open, man. Like if WandaVision is good and if Mandalorian is good and and despite issues we've had with with all these things, I think that those shows are very worthy and in a lot of ways represent the last vestiges of hey, this TV show is important. Everybody's watching it and talking about it. Yeah. In some ways, the way that Disney is doing this by creating this much attention for things and releasing them once a week is about as TV as you can get. So uh, I guess that's a perfect uh, segue to get into Loki's finale and Black Widow. So we'll be right back after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, Andy, I'm kind of glad that we wound up waiting to talk about Black Widow because, you know, obviously it's been out for about a week now, but we didn't get a chance to talk about it on Monday. That was a pre-recorded episode where we did our mailbag. Uh, and I'm glad we're going to get to talk about it in in con- conjunction with Loki because I thought watching Black Widow, I was reminded about how much I enjoy Marvel movies generally, mm-hmm. you know, and in some ways, maybe now I've found myself the pendulum is swung where I'm like, is that my preferred model of Marvel storytelling is actually like, I get to see one of these every few months and it's two hours and it's a lot of fun. And, and then there's a credit stinger. And then I walk out and think about that for a while. And 
get on with my life rather than the here's six weeks of constant speculation. Will they land it? Will they answer this question? What will it do to set up this next thing? And is these are these episodes successful? Mm-hmm. That would actually be a perfect conversation starting point if I didn't also think that the finale yes. for Loki was pretty fucking amazing. <laughs> I completely agree with you. I was exactly ready to have that conversation too. And reality got in the way and yeah. bumped me up. And what a weird, you being the prepared professional podcaster you are, you watch Black Widow well in advance of her recording time. I was harboring secret yeah, you plans. Wanted, you wanted to go to the theater, yeah. I was going to sneak into a theater... No, I was going to pay You're for a ticket. Pay for your ticket, but, yeah. But I sneak in the sense that I would be wearing, you know, a full like hazmat suit and sitting in the back row. But I was going to try to go see it because I wanted, the, I re, you know, like many of us, I yeah, wanted that movie I experience. Did, I did but too. I also I particularly just... wanted it for this because I like going to Marvel movies. Um, watching it as God and Kevin Feige intended on my laptop at 9 p.m. at uh, my in-laws, that wasn't anyone's goal. And that said, it was a fascinating, for me, viewing experience that I can't wait to talk about. I do think that, and then watching the Loki finale the next morning on the same laptop did twin them in a way. And we could talk about the ways that they were both, you know, that maybe they were successful or surprising. But we should probably start with Loki just because that happened more recently, right? Yes. and, And why... It worked so well. And, I, and I'm excited to talk about what a movie even means in this context when I still just watch it on the same screen and the same streaming service. But what I kind of wanted to start with, if it's okay, is just to say, God, Loki was good. And now that we're done with it, it feels fantastic. I feel like a lightness and a looseness in my body because, and I think we've been dinged for this potentially legitimately too. We don't know what we're being given with mm-hmm. these shows. It's too new. Um, the Marvel, the MCU on TV is a new thing. What these shows mean, the stakes that they're playing with, how they're going to deliver them to us, what it'll feel like, what it's supposed to feel like. So there's a tension in our coverage of it because we just don't see the shape of it. And now we've seen all six episodes of Loki, which is far and away the most successful thing they've done to date out of the three. And it was a TV show. And it was a really good one. Mm-hmm. And that... I feel I feel fantastic about that. You know what I mean? It we spent all this time well they're not going to drop a major villain reveal in a TV show. Like Feige's going to be too precious with his infinity stones. He's going to hold them back for the big movie. So it's going to be it's going to kind of circle back in on itself and it's going to be a power broker thing again. Nope. Here's Kang. We got Kang. Yeah. And but also we, we got the nice not, version of him. Yeah. We got the nice Kang. <laughs> yeah. It's not just going to be, you know, it's not just going to feel neutered because at the end, it's a very, very long trailer for Ant-Man 3. Absolutely not. It was completely about itself, its world, its stakes, its emotions, its themes, its characters, and doubled down on it by at the end being like season two. We're just going to, we're going to keep building the story because we believe in this story and in this creative team. And I think sometimes we, even, even we underrate how important that is for a viewer because those early bumps when you're starting a pilot or starting a new series, look, it makes sense. If you get on a bus and the driver is somewhat, you know, it's reeks of pop-off vodka and is chain smoking <laughs> and looks like they haven't slept in three days, you're going to be like, I'm not going to relax during this journey. But then you realize, you know, maybe maybe it's just a nice 
old Russian man who love. I don't know. I'm, I'm creating. <laughs> I'm stereotyping. I, I don't know where I am with this bus metaphor, but I think you understand you in, what I are mean. Are you in deep Brooklyn? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> I, I'm in one of the many locations of Black Widow. Yeah. Um, the point is, we. I trust this creative team, and not just that. I'm thrilled by them, and that is a very. It's not. It's not just a familiar sensation to be like, great. I love this. I'd like more. It really puts the whole thing in a different context, in a different light, and I think ultimately it was a big triumph. Yeah. So speaking of that, how many sort of um, how many fake outs are we gonna get? Like, how many times are we? Because now I think after three, the Marvel TV structure has mm-hmm. been pretty well developed. There is gonna be some combat. That combat is gonna feel for me, like a little bit of an afterthought or mm-hmm. almost something that's skippable because for the most part, it's like, it's basically trying to add some fireworks to what is pretty dense expository, either character work or universe building, which is totally fine. I thought Loki did it the best out of all three so far. You know, I think that in some ways by going first, WandaVision had the hardest job, but also got like, not the easiest pass, but was like, wow, WandaVision's so weird and so different. Marvel TV is so is so wild. And I think now in retrospect, like going back, like I really appreciate what WandaVision tried to do. I think I probably enjoyed it the least out of the three shows so far. But it's kind of set up a model where like, you know, you're going to have like some central questions that sort of quote unquote need to get answered. But like you said, Loki is the one that actually went there. Um, Loki is the one where there actually was something at the end of the rainbow. And I don't know. So when the elevator opens there Mm -hmm. and Kang is there, there's this really interesting feeling because I I try to sometimes think about what someone who isn't already a Kang obsessive thinks when Mm -hmm. a character played by Jonathan Majors, who is an excellent actor that I don't think a ton of people know. So there is a big difference between that being Jonathan Majors and say like if Josh Brolin was more recognizable as Thanos or something mm-hmm. like that. The elevator opens, this guy is sitting there in a cape. He's doing he's doing the most with his scenes that he gets. And for me, I'm like I have heard about this guy, but he you know, I still need them to do the mm-hmm. this is who I am, this is what I want and this is what you need to decide work. And they did it. They did it. Like I don't even know if they ever he ever says that his name is Kang. Uh, Never I think he. I think he says I've been referred to as the Conqueror mm-hmm. or whatever. But I actually thought he did a pretty good job explaining. I mean, what is going to be Secret Wars, right? Like he does a pretty good job being like, "Yeah, man, like there are all these different realities. I was partially responsible for discovering them. Then me and all my variants basically fought, and I won, and I keep a lid on chaos." much to the chagrin of people like you who get their hearts broken at their lot in life. This was, I mean, it's sad that there will be schools for this, but there should be because this is where entertainment is going. But like the the exposition scene should be taught in his his, academy. His speech at the desk where he's like, here's like a little animation of this, right? Also, by the way, this is the the little things that make me so impressed with this show. That was a over 10 minute talking scene. Mm Mm-hmm. But this has been a series of over 10-minute talking scenes with great actors and very light, uh, balletic dialogue. And it's a pleasure. And, you know, the little conceit of the little mold, the, the sort of Warhammer figures forming on the desk of the story, great. It communicated the information and it simplified it. And this is what, more than anything, what Kevin Feige has done best in this unprecedented run, which is take 
find in, in a way this is what what does make him kind of the heir to Stan Lee not just in terms of his position at the company like a pure universal simple thing mm-hmm. and communicate it and then you can dress it in all the chaos of the multiverse and people will go along for the ride and and doing that with Kang was amazing I think what was also amazing and this is kind of what I was referring to before is that elevator opens any other time in pop culture popcorn movie history Jonathan Majors isn't the one in the cape yeah you know it it is a million percent Paul Bettany or Paul Bettany type, you know, a mustache twirling British actor, uh, white British actor doing that and yeah. playing that role. It is incredibly liberating and exciting for it to be a different actor, not just a, 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 an actor of color, but a young actor with serious stage chops. I mean, he who, as you said, people don't really have a fixed opinion of yet. He was very strong in Lovecraft Country, but he was the straight man. He was the lead. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of a muscular, brooding figure in that. He was great in The Five Bloods, the Spike Lee movie, but again, a supporting role. And you don't really get a sense of him and how surprising and um, electric he is as a performer. And he was encouraged as generally only the Gary Oldmans of the world Uh, had been previously encouraged to do, eat every line of dialogue like it's that apple, dude. Yeah. Go for it. Because you got Hiddleston, you got Sofia DiMartino there. This is a great trio. And it was a lot of- But they're like in the audience. Like they just sit there in those chairs and they're in the audience for him. And he gets that, yeah, you're right. Like probably, you know, 15 pages of, of, of a speech to give where he's essentially explaining- the last five episodes of TV that we've watched mm-hmm. and probably the next five to 10 years of movies we're about to see. Yeah, because by removing this benevolent, apparently, version of Kang, we are now going to bring down the reign of chaos of potentially, you know, thousands more. And the beauty of it with this variant thing that they've introduced in the series is Jonathan Majors, you know, is already signed to play this character, different iterations of him multiple times, but there could be variants. Mm-hmm. This can just be a thing that keeps happening, and and it and it suggests um, a way forward for the larger Marvel storytelling machine. In that now we see what a lot of this is going to be about, but we have also seen that it is possible to keep a lid on it. So it both blows out the idea of stakes because now everybody can die and everyone can be a variant and anything is in play, which is important to, for comic book sure. storytelling. But it begins from a place of. But it wasn't always like that thanks to this one character. So right. we could go back to that. So we could right. put a lid on it so people could... I mean, it always comes back to living and dying, but you, characters could die right. again. Like like Tony and Natasha are still technically... like They are dead, mm-hmm. and those characters... Like the actors who play those characters perhaps will not return to the Marvel mm-hmm. Universe. But I would be very surprised if in 10 years or whenever we mm-hmm. this culminates if before the end of this next phase of the, of the Marvel, we do not see Scarlett Johansson and Robert Downey Jr. again in some capacity. As long as everyone gets along in Georgia as they seem to, they'll be back for yeah. something. Um, even if it's just a little stinger or a flashback or whatever. Yeah, because the vibes and the paychecks are extremely good. And those are the two things that actors look for. Just in terms of this as a TV show, though, you know, just, I just, I hope we get to talk to Michael Waldron at some point because... Opening the gates to this evil purple glowing CGI, but on a soundstage in Georgia's Citadel, and then having it be the creepy animated clock voiced by the great Tara Strong. Like, yes, this is what I want. This is the big entertainment that I want. I love the sense of humor. I love the confidence. And again, I love that this was the show it was from the beginning. Uh, It went to a lot of different places, though never left Georgia. Uh, Yet it stayed true to its 
tone and its point of view. And a lot of the credit has to go to uh, Kate Heron and I mentioned Michael Waldron and this incredible cast that they put together. But I also want to shout out uh, Natalie Holt, who did the, who's the composer, mm-hmm. who's a, a young British composer who you can read about her in Variety. I just did like the attention to detail and the character work that the music did by combining these kind of enormous Norse choral pieces, but also theremin. Yeah. So brilliant. And so, uh, I'm not sure what the word even would be because there was just a consistency of the artistic vision and the chances taken and the tone that is incredibly hard to balance. And that is, that's also what made this a successful TV series. Not just because I think sometimes when we say this is a good TV show versus a movie or whatever, it's because we're like, well, they swung for the fences in episode two, and that was so great. In episode four, they swung for the fences and missed, but that's what TV is. Mm-hmm. There was a consistency here to the artistic vision that allowed the discrepancy in, um, not discrepancy, but the episodes were different. They were, you know, there were some, there was the Lamentous one. There was the, the Before Sunrise one, yeah. right? And then there's the wacky Richard E. Grant and Spandex one. But it was all always the same show in a way that I really loved. Yeah, in some ways it, it kind of reflected the level of control that I guess Kang exerted over the bureaucracy and the, mm-hmm. the the TVA in the first place where I feel like this was one of the first Marvel uh, productions, TV productions that didn't feel in some way claustrophobic because I think that there's um, the fact that they have such like a great production line going where, where they're shooting in Atlanta and, you know, obviously they go to other locations, but like there's something about the consistency of that that I think also sometimes can feel a little samey from show to show. And like when they're obviously like interior bound, it feels a little soundstagey. Now, that was mm-hmm. the point of WandaVision. But I thought sometimes when I was watching Falcon, I was like, this definitely just feels like the most generic like European street you could possibly imagine. Like there, th- that was. was one of the things I really liked about Black Widow is it felt a little bit more out in the mm-hmm. world, they kind of inverted the the claustrophobia with Loki. They were like, well, if it's all of this, you know, basically like purple mist tree branch off of a timeline fantasy, we can control everything. You know what I mean? And we can make it look as crazy or as beautiful or as haunting as we want. And then when you get into what what a bureaucracy that ran time looks like, it's kind of awesome. You know what I mean? It is kind of cool to have this like, this sort of office comedy going on. And I, if anything, I, I have to say about Loki is I kind of wish there had been more mm-hmm. case of the week, Owen Wilson and Tom Hiddleston go chase down a variant and then come back and shoot the shit with a guy who doesn't know what a fish is kind of stuff. Like they moved past that pretty quickly into Lady Loki and or Sylvie and, and, and figuring that whole idea of like your variant out. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that I never expected to, to, to say this about a Marvel show is I kind of want to stay in this fishbowl. Yeah. Like I, 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 this idea of an evil time lord and then the two Lokis trying to get back together so that they can perversely what love each other. I mean, it's so bizarre and it's such a richly drawn ecosystem that I, now I feel stingy. I all of these characters are of course going to be bound for other productions or even if they're just cameos and and maybe as you said like if Kang is the big bad and this is where we're headed in the MCU for the next 5 10 years it's inevitable but I kind of want to stay here. I want to stay in this particular version of it. And 
the the other thing I think that's worth noting that one of the reasons why this show might feel a little bit triumphant and a little bit different is because the great success that Marvel has had both in its comic books and in its film storytelling for the most part, and I'm sure there's going to be an example that I, an exception that, that I'm, I'm overlooking. Generally, they are about, they are stories about ordinary men and women who become super, mm-hmm. who become gods. And this was a really smart and fun uh illustration of the inverse of a god becoming a human. Yeah. And Hiddleston is fantastic at it. But it actually felt like there was the space and the intellectual writing chops behind all of it to wrestle with those questions. So when they had philosophical debates or divides or whatever, it was entert- it was both entertaining and 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 it 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 was thought-provoking, you yeah. know, about what it meant and what their fate was and free will. It I'm so tired of science fiction shows where people just, you know, yell in capes about the importance of free will. But at the end of this one, they had those debates and they had those conversations. And our hero, who is a liar, was basically like, maybe we shouldn't kill yeah, the dictator. Maybe the, what we have a power is, vacuum. Is, is the best. Maybe this is like the best it's going to get. And maybe we and, should. And, and he's a unique um, voice. He's a, he's, a, he's a unique advocate for that position because of what the complications of the character have been. And I really enjoyed that. How worried should I be about Kang? Like, how how bad are the bad versions of Kang? So bad. Yeah. <laughs> real, real, real bad. I mean, I think that one of the fundamental things of what the character has become over the last 40, 50, 60 years of storytelling is that one line that is almost a throwaway where he's like, I've seen the alternatives and it's just fire. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's that's how bad it is. And the thing about a character like Kang is that there's always another one always it's built into the dna in a very comic booky way but it actually it's not just lex luthor never quite dying it's a character who is always 10 steps ahead or 10 millennia ahead and flipping backwards and then showing up when you least expect him in sometimes in forms you least expect him to be in so how different would you have felt if the elevator opens and ravona's there and she's like i have another file to show you and at the very last second almost like in a stinger there's a picture of Kang. Like, how much of your uh, appreciation for the episode and I guess the show in general was because they actually were like, "We are putting some chips down." It 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 was it was everything. It was okay. totally everything because what it was doing was saying that this show did matter as more than a widget. It, I mean, as much as any, I, I understand how foolish that sounds to a degree, like this mattered. But in terms of this just being an extended trailer for Ant Man, would have really, really been disheartening, especially considering what great work people put into it. Mm-hmm. You know, it suggested that there is a, there is a, not just a point to the storytelling, but a a point that exists within the world of the television show Loki that we will continue to explore and be a part of. I think it would have been a really, and I, I, kudos to everyone for acknowledging this and recognizing it, it would have been a really bad feeling to have laid such wonderful groundwork for, you know, just a punt in the yeah. final moments. Right. To end um, on penalties, if you will, Chris. Very frustrating so feeling at the end. Let me reverse that question. Okay. Did you feel like Black Widow was a trailer for Hawkeye then? In the end, yes. What I was, that is, a, it's a great to start at the end of these things because I have a lot of very positive things to say about, about Black Widow, many more than I expected to, and I'm excited to talk to you about it. But it was very, it's it's very odd that the end of Loki, not just the stinger, which was only saying that there's going to be a season two, season, which yeah. is great. But that Loki felt like it had more to say 
about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, ultimately, than Black Widow, which was a movie and used its stinger to advance a TV show. Yeah. Now, I don't know what that stinger may or may not have been had Black Widow come out when it was supposed to come out, which would have mm-hmm. been last summer, right? So yep. theoretically... It may have been a totally different. Yeah. I don't know what show it might have been. Maybe it would be Falcon. I don't I don't know, because that's obviously where we see the Julia mm-hmm. Louis-Dreyfus character for the first time. But yeah, like I felt like for uh, as monumental, or I, I mean, at least within Marvel terms, is the 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 finally a standalone film for the Black Widow character is supposed to feel, the very end of it felt almost like clipped, you know? And, it, and was, it was odd. It almost makes me think, oh yeah, well, in some capacity, she will definitely be coming back, like Natasha Romanoff will definitely come back into the MCU because they, they didn't do 10 minutes of teary tributes to her. You know what I mean? Like the way they do for for Iron Man, the way they do for Captain America, the way the way they would do for any number of characters. I think that what, well, I think there's, I think there's two things to say. And, and, and one is, one is addressing your comment, but also inside of it is my larger complaint about the film. And again, I kind of liked it. And mm-hmm. I, and I, and, and I will tell you why I promise. For me, what's always been the most appealing thing about the character, particularly when peeled away from the Avengers, a group that she is not the most natural fit for because she is a, you know, mostly unpowered, although apparently she's concussion proof, <laughs> uh, Russian spy who, um, you know, who, who has killed people and works best alone, et cetera, et cetera. When you peel her away, and this has happened in the comics a lot more recently, there's a great Mark Wade and Chris Samney series that I recommend people check out. One of the greatest artists working, in my opinion, that really runs right towards the fact that she's a 60s creation, right? Like she's just kind of pop and fun and espionage and style. And mm-hmm. that's exciting. And with Scarlett Johansson signed on to do it, that in and of itself is a franchise. And so I almost wish they had just done from the back files of, and this is something that she was up to and did in yeah. between Avengers movies. And you could tell a fun, tonally different story. And that's still on the table. And so my feeling is, to your point about whether she'll be back, this movie's doing gangbusters, especially in the still you know uh, changed COVID marketplace and landscape. It is hugely profitable and it's a big hit. And that's a, you know, that's a credit to everyone involved and to Scarlett Johansson's appeal as the character. My feeling is rather than do the sort of, remember when Jeremy Renner was going to take over for Tom Cruise and Mission yes. Impossible and it, it, literally within the movie. You can he, tell he Tom Cruise be back. like, eh, I'm okay. So Let's I think that's climb why, up the Burj. <laughs> I, I think that's exactly. And I think that's why, even though it's right there on the table for Florence Pugh to be the new Black Widow in the Marvel Universe, and not just on the table because how cool we've come up with this clever fix. She's incredible. And I would yeah. love to see her in those movies. I think that's why the end of this movie doesn't give uh, Scarlet the send off and it doesn't anoint Florence as the new Black Widow. And in fact, it, it it shunts her over to television sure. to say that there's more here. So I think that they're being smart with the optionality of we could have our born identity franchise and just tell spy stories as long as she wants to do them. And maybe we could be more free to do it because we always, like they always feel they need to do. This had to be an origin story, even though the most labored part of the movie to me was, wait, where in the timeline is this happening? And what are we now retconning about this character? All that stuff was was burdensome I yeah. think, to me now i do think that this was handled way less sort of uh i don't know it was never dull to me for the most no. part like, except for Agreed. the i feel like the last action sort of sequence in the towards the end of the movie got really really silly but 
for the most part, I actually was pretty engaged with, um, with the entire thing, and I thought it, they did they did they did a really interesting thing where they kind of treated the audience a lot more uh, like they were a lot more intelligent than I usually find Marvel movies to do. Like I think that they breeze through this idea that everybody knows what the Red Room is, everybody understands this is Drake off. These are moments that you may not have quite like remembered from past Marvel movies when they get mentioned. Whether it's I guess in Ultron, we sort of really find out about what made Natasha, right? There is kind of a, a, a flashback to, yeah, yeah to a and training then there's, program. Obviously, she's on the run after, um, I guess, is it Civil War? Civil or Winter, War. Civil War. There's a lot of stuff in here where I'm like, oh yeah, right, that happens in that movie from seven years ago or nine years Shout ago. Shout out to Sokovia Accord, still the most important piece of legislation But I was so history. glad, I, I know, seriously, I was so glad that we didn't spend 30 minutes recapping that and yes. 30 minutes re-explaining this is this woman who is, you know, she was put through these incredibly like traumatic training exercises to become the assassin that she is. And there was some mind control involved, like all that stuff. I'm so glad that we kind of like powered through that. And I'm especially glad because I don't know if Ray Winston's very, Oof. very, very, very fleeting grasp on the Russian accent would have held if he had had more. Speaking of time. Gary Oldman, how many offers did they make? I mean, for I a part written for him, he the um, Ray Winston is just like, so you need me to do my departed character. <laughs> they're like, yes and no, but sometimes, yeah. Uh, that was not that was not the highlight of the movie, and I think that I agree with you about the balance they found between the homework and a new story. I think they found that they, they it was the correct balance they were aiming for. I did feel more so than in other Marvel properties the competing hands of the creative teams, you know, three people credited for this, one person credited for the script, two people credited for the story. I'm sure many other people did drafts of it. There were moments that just shone and sparkled and popped. Mm -hmm. And there were moments that felt more like homework or drudgery. And the the balance between them felt more um, abrupt, sure. uh, the, the transitions then generally. I think it's worth mentioning at this point, you kept talking about a straw person who wasn't familiar necessarily with Civil War or whatever. I would like to offer my wife, um, hopefully she is okay with this. This was the first Marvel thing she's ever seen. Okay. And this is because I was like, I'm watching this now on the laptop. And she said, okay, fine. And um, did she ask every 30 seconds, who is that and what are they doing? No. In fact, I said, before we start, I said, I think it's worthwhile for the experiment to see what kind how this movie just hangs. If I say nothing, Mm -hmm. tell you nothing and she was thrilled because let me tell you chris <laughs> 44 year old man explaining marvel Black cinematic Widow. universe to someone yeah. never never yeah. a good look um i'll say her here's her their most, controversial uh philosophy on reproductive rights in the red room <laughs> wow yeah that that's speaking of scenes that just kind of came out of nowhere um i will say that her strongest reaction came during the you know what i think to her felt like the interminable the Marvel Studios thing is spinning and we're seeing the flat, you know, the thing that we're now used to of all the characters in it. And, you know, you see Captain America throwing the shield and Ant-Man and Black Panther and all this. And um, her response to that was, what's the movie with the bear with the gun? I think that's the one I'd want to see. And I said, well, I'm going to stop you there. It's a raccoon voiced by Academy Award nominee Bradley Cooper. But so I guess we will be revisiting the Guardians of the Galaxy films Fantastic. in this household um, for the bear with the gun. But I, I think that her, not just lack of familiarity with the characters, but with the cinematic language that these movies do, which has worked around the world and which really popped to me, both in contrast to Loki, but also watching at home, which is 
the relentlessness of the fight language and the action tempo, especially yeah. in the first parts of the movie, until they settle down. Um, I mean, I, I, it basically until they start uh, uh, Natasha's dressing Elena's wounds. Like the movie kind of never stops again. Oh, and I she's like, say- wait, why? Are, what are they fighting for? There, I, um, I see. I actually read it more like there was like basically an hour and fifteen minutes of almost nonstop action mm-hmm. and chase, which I didn't mind actually. Like I thought they were really well staged. I thought it was like yeah. for as much as you're just like you have that block in your head of like this person cannot be injured, so all these fights are essentially mm-hmm. eye candy. Like when you get finally to uh, Rachel Vice's character Melina's house, and everybody yes, that's is when like, it starts to calm down. That, not only does it calm down, it hits a brick wall, and I think that it's a credit to the actors involved in that scene that they are able to get through Mm -hmm. about a half an hour of talking about feelings after you've been basically chasing Red Bull with, with trucker speed for like the first hour and 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah. It's not a natural cinematic language for people who have been watching players knee on the Criterion collection. They have an issue with that where it's like, you know, there's there's the sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark idea that something like action has to happen every 10 minutes mm-hmm. to re-engage the audience. I think Marvel has a tendency to have that happen every 10 minutes, but then when they have any quiet moments, they are really quiet. They are really, really like yeah. four people sitting in a room talking about what it means to be a superhero, you know? It- and, and I and I think this is generally true. It's almost as if a different creative team is responsible for them. And creative team is a very um, fungible term, but but I think it's it's well documented that when Marvel recruits and works with directors, particularly directors that they think you know are interesting or exciting or have vision or work well with actors, they say to them as part of their sales pitch, "We will help you with the storyboarding of the action stuff because we know how to do that." And I think that's worked for a lot of people. I don't mean that as a dig at Kate Shortland who directed this film, and I think by and large seems to have done a very good job with it. It didn't. I, anything that I'm that I'm that I'm personally dinging, I don't felt I didn't didn't seem to me like to be directorial uh, missteps. But let me give you one other way into this movie, which was my way into it, and I was very feeling very pessimistic and and negative about having to watch this on my laptop because I couldn't even watch it on a TV because where I'm at, we that's not that wasn't even possible. We do mm-hmm. not have a device to do that. So um, watching it on my laptop, feeling bummed about it. And the experience I had, though, for the first 20 minutes of this movie left me feeling something very strange and unexpected. And it took me a minute to realize what it was. And it was like the experience last year when the world shut down and then all the best restaurants in L.A. were like, okay, you can just have our food at home. Do you guys want to take out? Yeah. (laughs) And so then you bring home these like unassuming, non-promising boxes and you open them. And then you have sensory overload of mm-hmm. like salt and fat and flavor that you never have in your home. Yeah. And so I was staring at this movie on the same box that I watch, you know, Loki on. Loki's not a good, good example because Loki's obviously from the same kitchen. Yeah, but then but you get like mad overhead shots of European cities. And then when you get to that, the end of the movie, they're like, thank you to the people of Oslo and Budapest for letting us film there. Chris, the, the opening, which is just like, like Beasts of the Southern Wild or something. Yeah meets the Americans. And by the way, it was, I felt like it was better than the Americans' final season, the first 10 minutes of this movie. I was like, I was so in. I was dangerously in. Like, I couldn't believe how transfixed I was by the opening. The blue-haired girl, and where are they going? Now they're on a plane, and what is even happening? And I was thrilled. And that was fun. That was honestly yeah. fun. And in some ways, maybe it made me overrate the film to a degree um, because I was just so on board. There clearly is 
and maybe it's location shooting, it's tempo, it's pace, it's budget, but there is a difference still. Yeah. It was nice to see. There's also the difference from the fact that we did not spend four hours wondering who Taskmaster was. Right. Which is exactly what would have happened if this had been a show. We would have spent a right. month of our lives being like, who's Taskmaster? Who could be the Taskmaster? Now, I don't know if in comics that's a well-known thing when you're reading, you're always aware of that it's Dracoff's daughter or whatever. But like, I, when I was watching it, I was like, cool character. Shout out Olga Karolinko. And then like she gets dispatched within the confines of a movie. Now, yeah. you may be like that now is like sort of like a an afterthought. But if that had been a show, we would have had a very, very like long debate about like how are they dispatching this person and, and who is going to be the taskmaster when they finally like reveal who it is. And it could be this person or that person. And what will they mean for future episodes or fu- yeah, for future seasons of TV and the movies? What was most noteworthy to me, I guess, in the midst of this and the fight scenes and the backstory and whatever, is that there was still room for two of the most noteworthy, memorable, and to my mind, fantastic performances in recent Marvel Cinematic History. And we've already mentioned Florence Pugh. We should circle back to her before we're done. But I do want to just take a moment to stand up and salute David Harbour. (laughs) Who, I hope he I hope he gets to share a scene with Jonathan Majors at some point. It, it's a similar thing, right? And yeah. and I just throwing I think that it, ham sandwiches at one another. He does have a gravity though, Harbor. You know, that like he's good at this in almost everything he does, where he can be extremely broad in the margins in or in whatever the genre, you know. Uh, expectations are, and this is true in Stranger Things too, but because of the pathos that he just carries as a performer, you buy it and you feel for him. And I loved, I loved what they did with the character, the Red Guardian, which does exist in the comic books. I love the sort of just deep comedic sadness to him. And I also thought that there were moments, and again, they just sort of bubbled up out of nowhere. And I don't know if these were revisions or like a script doctor or one of the people who worked on in particularly that was what they did um whether it was you know jack schaefer we should note who has a story by credit who who's the showrunner of wandavision but like the whole bit with the earpiece mm-hmm. right there's the moment later in the movie where where rachel vise is communicating with florence Pugh, and then david harbour decides that he also wants to speak to the his adopted daughters and says some things and they're like you don't have one <laughs> you don't have an earpiece yeah it it's just great business and it was a lot of fun. And this idea of this weird, super-powered, fake family in and of itself is a good idea that got as much attention as it could in the midst of all the explosions and the larger MCU significance. But I, I thought that was great. Rachel Weisz getting to be a Black Widow is just awesome as a huge fan of hers. And 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 Florence Pugh, like it's one of those things where they were like, yeah, you're next. Sure. You you are the next person who can do this. And they're in some be- ways, they're betting be even better. right in a lot of ways so far. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, all these shows have sort of been, if not make goods, they're like, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna spend a little time with some of the secondary characters that you know and love from these 10 years of movies. And in the process, they have introduced a couple of pretty cool new people. Now, whether or not that carries over because somebody is like, oh yeah, Florence Pugh, she was in the second half of Black Widow or Jonathan Majors, mm-hmm. right? He's in the last scene of Loki or or whatever. Like, are, are, is Wyatt Russell going to like sear himself into people's consciousness as, as US agent going forward? I don't know. 
You know, I don't know. I don't know if U.S. Agent and Kang and Florence Pugh's character from Black Widow are going to like ever rise up the way those first group of Avengers just seem to completely take over popular culture in a lot of ways. It's all mixed up. And I'm very, in terms of what's movies, what's TV, what's, what feels significant, what feels lasting. And I'm not sure which way is up. And I think that's probably how Disney wants it because they're just going to keep throwing content at us. Yeah. But the intentional mirroring of how the Avengers, first Avengers team was formed with Sam Jackson showing up at the end of the Hulk movie and Iron Man and then putting these pieces together I have to say that, and I love Julie Louis-Dreyfus, one of the great actors of our time, certainly comedic actors of our time, it feels smaller. It just feels a little smaller. It feels like, and maybe it's because she's assembling the Thunderbolts, not the Avengers, you know, and she's particularly targeting the people who are like the knockoffs of the original heroes, and that's Mm -hmm. where we're going with the secondary versions, et cetera. But it doesn't feel as auspicious. And, you know, Florence Pugh is such a, rocket ship of talent and I love the character and in some ways improves on not Scarlett Johansson as a performer but just in terms of her point of view and her attitude yeah, she's and her so humor. much looser yeah she's looser and she's livelier so it's a chance to maybe correct something going forward you know I it felt it did feel a little bit strange to me to harness that electricity and then punt it over into the Hawkeye series mm-hmm. because you and I, look, I've, I've said it a hundred times and I'll say it again. It appears that they're basing the Hawkeye series on one of the great comic book runs of the last 20 years, Matt Fraction's Hawkeye series. Check it out if you haven't. Could not be more here for that. And you and I have had a long history with Jeremy Renner and liking his work. I'm finding it harder and harder to root for him as a performer and as a person. And was honestly a little bummed when his face is in that picture because we're going back to that. Yeah. And as you said, Marvel has had such a great track record of betting correctly and playing the long game that all of this felt a little and this is I think super by the end of that Hawkeye series it, I but. think by the end of the, the Hawkeye series it's going to be Haley Steinfeld show and it's going to be her character though Yeah and that is in and and that move towards the replacements towards the sidekicks I mean that that went that happened in comics and it's going to happen in the movies too as actors age out or are pushed out but it's a transitional moment and I guess maybe what was so striking if we're going to compare these things before we wrap up Loki felt whole and that was a really satisfying experience. Black Widow is a much more interesting movie than I thought it was going to be. It is better by far than a lot of the mid-tier Marvel films. I mean, like this was better than Captain Marvel, I think, by an enormous stretch. Yes. But it was bumpy in ways that spoke to the moment of where these movies are and the, the and all the things that we that we and the marketplace ask of them. That's really well put. Uh, we can wrap it up there. So just a little bit of programming. Uh, Andy and I are off next week. So we will not be doing new shows next week. Uh, enjoy White Lotus. Enjoy the North Water because we'll come back the following week at some point. Maybe not Monday, but I, it, we'll, we'll see and we'll, we'll hit up all those shows. Uh, Greenwald, until then, man, have a great vacation. We won't leave you for long. Have a, <laughs> enjoy your summer break, Francis. Bye, guys. <laughs>